0: This Torah class is brought to you by TorahAnytime.com Okay, good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome back to another wonderful, awesome uh, installment of the Power of the Parsha. This week's Torah portion is Parsha's Te And you shall command. You shall command the Jewish people. Uh, Interesting little fun fact. This week's Parsha is the only one from the time that Moses is born. Moses is born in the beginning of Parsha's Shmos. Okay, And from that time until the end of the Torah, Moses is found in every single Parsha. He is not found anywhere in this week's Parsha. He's referenced using a pronoun, Ve'ata, and you, who's you referring to? You is referring to Moses, but it doesn't say his name anywhere. There's actually a number of explanations for this. Just like, uh, Wait, wait, hold on. Slow down. Slow down, lady. Let's first thank everybody, because you guys all came on over here in the middle of your busy days. Turned on your cameras. You showed up i got to say thank you. A lot of people got to thank. Let's start off with thanking. So thank you all for coming on and being part of this class and being awesome and amazing. Here we go. Thank you to all of you who are here right now. Thank you to any of you who are listening to this at a subsequent later date. I appreciate every single one of you as just as much. I also want to thank the amazing staff over at Partners Detroit and Yeshua Beth Yehuda for allowing me to have the opportunity to engage with you and have this amazing Dialogue and class every week, and all the classes and all those, the Torah study that, that I do, and I and I and I work on throughout the week. And of course, thank you to the amazing folk over at Torah Anytime. It's an app. It's a website. My daughter, my amazing, amazing daughter, who like listens to Torah classes pretty much all of her waking hours. She's an incredible, incredible young lady. She actually made herself a little folder, um, and she printed out like a massive, big size logo of Torah Anytime. And she pasted it on the front of this folder because the folder is going to be filled with her notes from Torah classes that she voluntarily, voluntarily listens to from Torah Anytime. And on the top, so she's got this folder. It's got the Torah Anytime logo like in, I don't know, maybe eight inches, six inches by six inches. And on the, on the bottom it says, Torah Anytime. It's an app. It's a website. (laughs) It's amazing. So she definitely has heard a class or two of mine. So we want to thank the amazing folk over at Torah Anytime. It's an app, it's a website, and it's filled with hundreds of thousands of hours of incredible Torah content. Feel free to peruse on by. Head on on down to www.toranytime.com or check it out on your Google Play or your Apple Store or wherever you get your apps. Download it and start filling your mind with incredible Torah wisdom from as many teachers as you possibly could possibly uh, consume. Okay, um, back to this week's Torah portion. So this week's Torah portion is Tetzaveh, the only Torah portion in which Moses is not found. Now, the most famous explanation for that is that we're going to read about the golden calf story shortly, and in that golden calf story, God is so angry at the Jewish people, he wants to wipe them out, and Moses comes to God and says, Hashem is like, look, I'll, I'll, I'll take out the Jewish people, you know what I'm saying? and uh, I'll start over with you, we'll, we'll, we, we can rebuild, you know what I'm saying, just me, you, and I guess, you know, and your wife, and your kids, and, and we'll rebuild. And Moshe says, if you do that, then mecheni nami sifracha asher kasavta, take me out of the Torah that you wrote. Now, in the end, of course, God does not destroy the Jewish people, and of course, Moses is not removed from the Torah, however, because he put it out of his mouth, Things that come out of the mouth of a big tzaddik have some level of, um, they they get carried out no matter what. So even though the full, and even though it was done on on a condition, if you take out the Jewish people, then erase me, even so he was at least erased from the fact that he even discussed it, he was erased from one parsha, and it's this week's Torah portion. Now, interestingly of course, when do we read about the golden calf? In next week's Torah portion. So why is he being erased from the portion where it was before it happened? The answer, of course, is two different answers. Number one, what we're discussing this week's Torah portion chronologically happened after the golden calf. The Torah is not necessarily written in order. And number two, he said, remove me from the sefer that Asher Kasavta, that you already wrote. So we just go back one parsha and we remove him. However, that's the standard idea of why Moses' name is not found in this week's Torah portion. I do want to point out two other reasons, and that's actually not even our topic for today. We've got so much other amazing things to talk about today, but I just want to let you know. One reason, fascinatingly, I saw, I think, from, I think the Vilna Gaon says this, is that God knew that Parshas Tzav is almost always read in the week of Zion Adar, like this year. This year, we had Zion Adar this week, and Zion Adar, the seventh day of Adar, is the... Uh, yard site of Moshe. So Moshe Rabbeinu died in this week, and almost every single year we read Parsha Tzavah. with In that week is the day that Moses died. So to kind of hint to that, Hashem left Moses' name out of Parsha Tetzaveh. Fascinating. One other idea that I saw that's really interesting. This entire, this, this, most of this Torah portion is about various things that the Kohanim would do. Number one, it's a lot about their clothing, the holy vestments that they would wear, but it's also, it's about the, the clothing they wore, it's also about the lighting of the menorah, which was an honor given almost always to the Kohen Gadol, the high priest. Now, if you remember, Moses was supposed to be the high priest. When God originally came to him and said, Moses, take my people out, Moses was supposed to be the high priest, he was supposed to be the leader, like the king, and he was supposed to have all the roles. But because he protested God's giving him this job profusely, God said, all right, you don't want to do it? No problem. Let's get Aaron. He'll come in and help you. And because of that, Moses was the leader, Aaron was the priest. But had Moses not been too excessive in his humility, back in the beginning of, of Exodus, God would have given him both jobs. It might have been very tough for Moshe to see his name plastered all over the Parsha talking about what the prize that he lost, so God, so to speak, in sensitivity to him, knowing that this would be a Parsha that really deals with all the things, all the honor and glory given to Aaron that should have been given to Moses if Moses did not protest too profusely God's uh providing him with these incredible roles, and therefore. It would be like a tough Parsha for Moshe to see his name all over it because it talks about the things that Moshe lost. Okay. Those are just a little, that's a a tidbit out there, just a little beautiful tidbit. Why is Moses' name not in this week's Torah portion? But now, let's get down to it. Before we talk about, now Noreen says Moses had enough to do without being the priest and the leader. I hear you. (laughs) Very good. But he would have been able to do it all had he not protested, meaning God gives you sometimes more capabilities. A human's capability is like an accordion, right? Again, let me say this very clearly. A human's capability is like an accordion. The more you pull on it, the more it suddenly magically gets bigger, right? You ever see a person sit down in a, in a little town square and start playing a little accordion? The accordion's like this, but as you pull it, it just gets bigger and bigger and bigger. That's human capability, So, Moses theoretically could have done more, but again, it was considered to be a punishment. Like, God told you what you were supposed to do, and then you protested a few times it was appropriate, but at a certain point, it was like, done. You've just gone too far here. So, that's why Moshe's name would not be in this week's Torah portion, so he wouldn't feel that twinge, that little pain, like, I could have had all this had I not been too, um, had I not been overly exceedingly humble. Okay, now. The parsha starts off with a mitzvah, so it actually starts off with the mitzvah of lighting the menorah. And the, the beginning parsha is ve'ata tizavem. Let's open it up. We're looking at Exodus chapter uh, twenty-seven, verse twenty. And you will command the Jewish people, and they will take to you very, very, very pure olive oil pressed for lighting. To make a continual light, the, the light, the, the, the olive oil used in the temple, when you would when you would press a olive, you were only allowed to use the first drop for the um, for the uh, for the for the menorah, right? So, the second drop you could use for, ta- like, offerings, because in the temple they would bring various flower offerings, and they would bring them with, uh, with olive oil. But the very first drop, and the very first drop only of an olive, could be used for the tabernacle and the Basa Migdash lighting of the menorah. You know, what we call oil made from only the very first drop of each olive? We call it extra, 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 extra virgin olive oil, right? I mean, this is like literally the very, 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 very first drop. Okay, now, that obviously is an expensive endeavor. Now, it's very interesting. So it tells you where you light it every day. You'll light it outside in the tabernacle. Now, the sages point out, they say something fascinating It says a language of commanding the Jewish people when it comes to Vatat this week's Torah portion, but it also says it when referring to another offering. The offering of the daily communal offering that was brought every day, the Karban Tamid, the continual offering. And we actually read this every Rosh Chodesh in Shul Okay, so that is the description in the Torah of bringing the karban tamid, the continual offering. It had to be brought every single day, 365 days a year, and there too we see the language of savas Yisrael, command the Jewish people. Now why does it specifically say by these two mitzvos a language of commanding? So who tells us this? The Ba'al Turim, one of the great commentators, excuse me on the Torah says why does it say the language of tzav, both by this one and by that one? Because, shneem noagim bechol yom, they are both mitzvahs that need to be done every single day. Every single day, you need to light the menorah from this incredibly expensive olive oil that has to be made only from the first drop out of each olive. And every single day, you have to bring two animals. You've got to bring two, um, lambs every single day these are things that require a a pretty significant they need to be done continually and they require a significant loss of money therefore they require an extra encouragement an extra zrezus an extra uh mention of moses telling them certain things you know we got to remind our kids all the time there's certain things you don't got to remind them right my kids all know that you know they're going to take you know they know like certain things they've got to do, but like, when it comes, you've got to remind them every day, hey, make sure you brush your teeth, make sure you know before you go to bed. Certain things that require a lot of time, a lot of effort, or whatever it might be, you've got to remind them every day to get them launched. So the, the, the Baal Turim says that the reason why specifically menorah and the continual offering are mentioned with the language of tzav is because they require loss of money and they're continual, therefore they were done as lashon tzav. Interestingly, The Torah starts off this week's Torah portion, And you will command, And you will command, You, Moses. What is the idea behind that specifically? It could just say, you know, And so you shall command the Jewish people. But it says, no, And you will command. Why does it point out you? So a very fascinating idea, is that Moses was somebody who was willing to forego cash for mitzvahs. How do we know this? Well, because I saw Moses had a sign outside his door that said, we'll pay cash for your mitzvahs. No, that's not not what happened. The reason why I know this is because when all the Jewish people were in Egypt, and it was their last night. Okay, so let's go through a little bit of history about the Jewish people. There were ten plagues. It was not fun for the Egyptians. Definitely not. But then there was one plague that was called the death of the firstborn, and it happened to everybody simultaneously at midnight on the, the first night of Pesach. Now, the Egyptians were horrified, and at this point, they just wanted the Jews out. Get out of our country. They were begging the Jews to leave. Now, Moses told the Jews, here's your opportunity to borrow... Borrow items from your neighbors, the Egyptians. During the plague of darkness, the Jews went around into their various neighbors' homes and kind of scoped out the situation. You know what I'm saying? Where's the jewelry drawer? He's Oh, he's got a Cartier watch on the bottom shelf hidden in the socks drawer. No one's ever thought of that one before. No one's ever thought of hiding anything in their socks drawer before. right? There's no question about it. Robbers coming to people's homes are like, where should we look? We're not going to look at people's socks drawer because no one would any, ever put anything there. Yeah, socks and underwear. No, no, no. We're going to look everywhere else. We're going to look for saves or whatever. So anyway, the Jewish people during the plague of darkness went around and looked where everybody had their valuables. And then when all the Egyptians were like, Jews, get out, the Jews went knocking on their neighbor's door. Hey, Egyptian friendly neighbor. They're like, get out. I'm so scared. You're gonna, you killed my firstborn. He's lying dead over here. I know my next kid's going to come next. And then the next one and the next one. And the Jews like, you know, I'll tell you, it's funny you say that because I think we're about to leave ourselves. But I just got one thing I need before I leave. Um, that Cartier wash? Yeah, the Pasha. Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll have your watch, please. And the guy's like, I don't have any, I don't have any Cartier watch. I did ever, I did ever, I don't have a Pasha. He's like, yeah, you do. It's in your underwear drawer, in your sock drawer, on the bottom over there, third bottom, third, third cabinet from the bottom. I, I, I was here already during the darkness. It's like, no, 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 I don't have that. Like, okay. The Jew's like, okay, fine, no problem. <laughs> you don't have to give me your watch. We're just going to stick around. And by the way, if you, if you do have a change of mind, I also would like the golden earrings that you've got. Um, I believe they're behind the medicine cabinet, and you also have your wife's jewelry box, and da 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 da. I'd like all that. The Egyptian was like, Are you crazy? You're going to take all my stuff. And the Jew like, No, no, <laughs> we're just borrowing it, right? And uh, if you want us to leave, that's kind of our ticket out. You need to give us stuff. Normally, you need a ticket. you got to pay a ticket to, to take a ride. If you want us to take a ride, you got to pay us. And the Egyptians were so afraid, they gave the Jews all their gold, okay? Um, now, what, what, so everybody's around, everybody's running around Egypt collecting buckets of cash. If you see any of the videos of these smash-and-grab looting situations... Yeah, I don't know if you guys seen any of these videos. Horrible what's going on right now. Like, you see a mob of people just descending on Louis Vuitton or Gucci or Burberry. They just walk in and they start grabbing stuff out. It was not like that. It was much more orderly. It was done with a very nice ask. We came. We smiled sweetly. We told them where the items were. We explained to them that in order for us to leave Egypt, we just needed a few of their items to borrow, okay? And um, boom, we're, we're going to be out of here. Now, what was Moses, while the Jewish people are amassing loads and loads of treasure, the Talmud describes like donkeys and donkeys of treasure, like just every Jew leaving Egypt was like laden with treasure. While everyone was gathering together treasure, Moses was going to get a mitzvah. What was the mitzvah? Joseph, Yosef, the great uh, viceroy of Egypt and one of the twelve tribes, he had told the Jewish people, Yosef was Hashbeah Hashbiyas B'nei Israel, Yosef made the Jewish people swear that when you get out of Egypt, <laughs> and you will take my bones with me. So while everybody was busy getting rich, Moses was busy going to do the mitzvah of taking, finding Yosef's bones and making sure that they could be properly and honorably disinterred from the ground and brought back up and brought to the land of Israel. Now, of course, he didn't make it all the way into the land of Israel, but at the end of his life, he did give the bones over to the children of Ephraim and Manasseh to bring into the land of Israel. He, he knew he was no longer going to be able to make it all the way, but he carried the bones with him his whole life in Egypt. That was the mitzvah that he wanted to do. So while everybody was getting cash, Moshe was getting mitzvahs. As the verse says, Chacham lev, yikach mitzvos. The wise man will take mitzvos. So everybody's getting rich, Moshe's getting mitzvos. Says the Torah, if I'm going to teach you commandments to do mitzvos that are going to be costly, like the mitzvah of lighting the menorah with the purest of oils, only one drop out of each olive, this extraordinarily expensive olive oil, and constantly, every single day, two offerings, who can teach this mitzvah the only person who can teach the mitzvah is Ve'ata and you. You know why? Because you're so good at it. The only person who can teach a mitzvah effectively is somebody who is that mitzvah, is somebody who lives that mitzvah. And I'll tell you a fascinating phenomenon. I have asked many children who came out of Pluralistic Community Elementary Schools. And I've asked them, tell me who your favorite teacher was. Now, one of their most favorite teachers was a famous lady named Maura Perlstein. Some of you may know who she was, an Israeli woman if you're here from Detroit. Boom, high saffron, was that your favorite? Was that your favorite? Not really. He's, he's had one of your favorites. One of your favorites. high Saffron can never say who his favorite is. Cherna Kowalski is your favorite. There we go. Yeah, but... Cherno what, didn't teach, what, ling, what, what, what topic were you teaching, Cherno? I don't think you were teaching Limude Kodesh, like Hebrew studies. Maybe you were, I don't know. But what's fascinating to me is I've asked a lot of people who their favorite teachers were. And often, in a school that has very few Torah observant Jews, I would get answers that their favorite teachers were Rabbi Greg or Mora Perlstein or various people who keep Torah. And you've got to wonder, why is that? Why is it you have a school, it's got, let's say, I don't know, 50 teachers, maybe three of them, four of them, are Torah observant, but so many of the kids that I ask, who was your favorite teacher, their answer is one of those three or four teachers. And you know what the answer is? The answer is, the kids can sniff out authenticity. And there's something inherent in them that rejects inauthenticity. When they're learning, there we go. Oh, here we go. Hi, Saffron writes in. Ms. Kowalski taught geography, civics, public science, government policy, and social studies. And she also taught the values of hard work and Jewish ethics. She remains a very influential teacher in my life. Ms. Kowalski, isn't that nice to hear that? She's on the Zoom too. Okay. However, says Hi, Saffron, Mrs. Pearlstein was my first grade Hebrew teacher and helped me fall in love with Judaism. And I can't tell you how many people I've heard that from. Now, she was an amazing teacher, obviously. But she also strongly believed in the Judaism she was teaching. If you have somebody going to a school and they're teaching about the Jewish ethic of Shabbos, oh yeah, Shabbos is the Jewish day of rest, blah, blah, blah. They don't keep it. If they're teaching about the Jewish ethic of kosher, they don't keep kosher. If they're teaching about sukkah, they don't have a sukkah in their backyard. The kids can smell it like, like they smell the inauthenticity and it doesn't do it for them. You cannot teach something effectively if you don't believe in it yourself. If you don't do it yourself. If you don't practice it yourself. We're now teaching a mitzvah. As the Balaturim says, this is a mitzvah that's an expensive and costly mitzvah. Who should teach it? You Moshe, you who when everybody else was loading up bags of cash, you were going to do a mitzvah of helping bring up somebody's bones out of Egypt, you're the man who can teach about sacrificing your cash for mitzvahs and buying the most finest oil for the temple and so on and so forth, because you live it. That's why so often you can have people talk eloquently about a subject but if it's not a subject that they live or practice or, or, or are truly enthusiastic about it will have no effect and you can have somebody that one of the greatest people who influenced Jews and by the way let me just answer okay we got a couple we got a couple we got a couple uh, t- uh, comments over here first of all, Jeff Dell says first grade was the three best years of his life. <laughs> I believe it. I believe it. Okay, Cherna says that Ms. Perlstein started at Akiva and taught her kids there amazing. And she while she was being a teacher, she loved teaching and inserting Judaism. Awesome. Noreen says you can teach history even though you were not there. That is 100% true. But you can't teach history if you don't love history. Or you, you can. It just You won't be an inspiring history teacher. And even more so when it comes to Spirituality. Because spirituality is the matters of the spirit. If you don't, if you're not, if your spirit, if your neshama is not lit up, it's just not going to work. Now, and even fascinating, I'll tell you even more. Different people, different great rabbis talk about different ideas. And, and there, there are rabbis who have vast knowledge of Torah, but most of their work is in a particular area. For example. The founder of the yeshiva that I went to, his name was Rabbi Shlomo Freifeld. And he was an absolutely amazing, amazing rabbi. And he had incredible Torah knowledge. But most of his classes were talking about interpersonal relationships. Because that was really where he just he loved different kinds of Jews are different. I mean, people have what we call matios, have tendencies towards certain mitzvos. I love Shabbos. I, lo- I love giving charity. I love chesed. I, so that's why I talk about that more. Now, I had a Rosh yeshiva. When I learned in yeshiva, his name was Rabbi Naftali Yeager, Shlita. He should live and be well for many, many years. Rabbi Naftali Yeager was an incredible, incredible uh, masmid. He, he, he loved to learn Torah. The word masmid comes from the word tamid. He was always learning Torah. He loved Torah. And so many of his speeches came back to learning Torah, because that was what totally activated him. And when he talked about learning Torah, you felt it because that was what he was. So for sure, even when it comes to history, if you don't love history, don't teach history. If you don't love chemistry, don't teach chemistry. But when it comes to Torah, it's even much more, because we're talking about it's, it's a spiritual item. Your soul needs to be lit up in order to be able to light another soul. We see this fascinatingly. There's an amazing pasuk in Shira Shirim. Song of Songs. Says King Solomon in Song of Songs, chapter 5, verse 1. Shira Shirim, parak hey, pasuk aleph. <speaking> imhalavi. <in Hebrew> Says the, 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 the man in the relationship. is a story between a man and a woman. The whole story of, it's really between God and the Jewish people. So he says, like this I came to my garden, my beloved sister, my beloved bride. I smelt, I, I, I mixed my myrrh. With my spices, I ate my, um, my, yeah, uh, how do we translate that? Hold on a second. I'm going to get you guys an exact translation here. Sorry about that. I like, when it comes to psukim, I'm, I try very hard to always give an exact, I, I, I really try very hard to always give a very very exact translation when it comes to verses. I can when I'm telling a story, I could add a little, you know, I can add a little detail here and there, a little flair here and there, but when it comes to verses, I always like to get it exactly right. Okay, so here we go. I want I want to get this right. I have come to my garden. My 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 sister, my bride. I've gathered my myrrh with my spice. I've eaten my sugarcane with my sugar. I've drunk my wine with my milk. Then, he says, eat, friends, drink, yeah, drink abundantly, and and, and, and become intoxicated, get totally taken away with intoxication and, and, and what you're drinking. <laughs> Seems like a little bit weird, because when you go to a party, people are always saying, come drink with me, come eat with me. Here, it's like, oh, I already ate, I already drank, now come you guys and eat and drink. But the idea is, what he's saying about over here is Shira Shira is teaching us an incredible lesson. They, they, they use a, 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 a mushal, a parable. One time there was a king and they were serving a big feast. And the way they used to do it in those days, they would bring out this massive, beautiful, you know, steaming cauldron of stew and they would put it in the front and then it would be served to the king and then everybody else now they've prepared this huge feast with this massive stew. They've got a couple whole goats in there. I don't know what's going on in there. You know what I'm saying? It's this big, big cauldron. It's enough to feed the whole, the whole party. And then suddenly, a fly flies in. Now, of course, immediately they remove the fly with a ladle. But now everyone's sitting and watching. If the king does not eat from that cauldron, nobody's eating from it. But if the king says, okay, we remove the fly. Here, please serve me first. And he eats a nice hearty thing. The whole place eats it. Says Shirim, the song of songs, the song that teaches the love between God and the Jewish people. You want to know how I can encourage other people to eat and drink of the beauties of Judaism and the beauties of the relationship with God? I already ate. I already drink. now I come and invite you all, come and eat and drink too. If you live it, you can teach it. If you live it, you can inspire it. If you live it, you can pass it on to others. And you, Moshe, who gave up all the money in the world to do the mitzvah of bringing up bones, you could teach people to do mitzvahs that will cost them a lot of money, because you lived it. And we see the same thing on Yom Kippur. On Yom Kippur, the coin Gadol first brings a carbon. That is a, a, a sacrifice, a, 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 a sin offering for his family. Then he brings it for the Kohanim, and then he brings for the whole Jewish people. If I don't clean myself up, I can't expect other people to clean themselves up either. I start with myself. Accountability starts with myself. And this is also what it says famous, famous Pasuk. We say, Vili Matatem Osamis Benechem Ladaber Bam. We say, in Shema, every single day, And you shall teach your children to speak of the words of Torah. When you're sitting in your house, when you're going on your way, when you go to bed, when you wake up. So people think it means I should should learn Torah with my son, while I'm traveling with him on the road, while I wake up in the morning, when we're at home. No, no, no. You should teach your kids to speak words of Torah. How do you do that? When you're sitting at home and instead of taking out your phone and playing games, you take out a Chumash, you take out a a, a Darash Moshe, you take out some kind of book and you start learning. You're watching Torah anytime. You're going to the rabbi's lectures. When they see you at home learning, that's how you teach your children. You wake up in the morning, and you go to Shul, and you go to the Dafyomi before davening. That's how you teach your children to love Torah. When you're on the road, and instead of listening to talk radio, or sports radio, or whatever it is, you're listening to a Torah class. That's how you teach your children to speak in Torah. So the idea is, the first and most important, this week's parsha starts off with the Atat And you, Moshe, will teach why can you, Moshe, teach? Because you are the one who lives the experience of sacrificing for Torah. Then you can talk about it to your children. I can't tell you, by the way, how many, children, how many Jewish children we lost because their parents would drop them off at Hebrew school and the kids would be like, come on, Mom, why do I need to go? And the mom's like, well, because I had to go when I was a kid and you're going to go now also. And then the parents, I remember, I used to teach in a Hebrew school. I did adult ed for the parents and it was amazing. They were dropping off maybe 200 kids at this, at this Hebrew school on Sunday morning. 200 kids. The vast majority of parents would fly away from that building as if the building was a Class 4 biohazard weapon. Where were they going? They were going to Starbucks right nearby so they could sit and schmooze and talk. God forbid go they should the, 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 go into the school. The school was providing free adult ed. You're dropping off your kids to get Jewish learning. You can also come in. The air is warm and it smells like fresh cookies. And we're going to be friendly and respectful. But no, 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 no. Drop off your kid and get away from the building. Go to Starbucks. Sit there and have your espresso latte. Schmooze with your friends. And then when it's time to pick up your kids, you go back and pick up your kids. Because God forbid, you should also learn too. Those kids, you think we're going to really can't... You think those kids are going to stay with the program? Do you know why 35% of Jews under the age of 35 say they have no religion? Because that's what they saw. So if we want to be able to pass on anything to our children, to people around us? You want, to pass, you, want to, you want your children to drink of the wine and the milk and the joy and the nurture of, of a Jewish life? You drink first. You eat first. Okay, next. That's just really the first few verses of the Torah portion. The vast majority of the Torah portion speaks about the clothing, the holy vestments worn by the Kohen Gadol. So I want to first start, I don't know if you guys have heard of this thing called the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier, but there is such a thing, and it's in, they have one in America, most countries have one. Now there's a lot of misinformation um, about the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier, There's there's like this famous thing that went around saying if you become a soldier at the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier, then for the rest of your life you can never drink alcohol and you can never swear, not true, but... Let's expl- let's learn a little bit about m- most soldiers. There's actually there's a website called TombGuard.org, which tells you all about the special honor guard at the tomb of the unknown soldiers. The idea of the tomb of the unknown soldier is like who's the who is the soldier? It could be anyone. We're mourning a lost soldier, and that lost soldier represents all the lost soldiers of the American armed forces and in in, in in all of our wars. So it's a it's, it's, it's they they have. The, the, the guards there have incredible pride. There used to not be a guard. There was a tomb of the unknown soldier, and it was established in the 1920s. But then there was some vandalism. There was people came, and they... And the, the rioters came, and they splashed graffiti on it. And they said, this is a disgrace. This, this tomb was supposed to honor our lost soldiers who fought for America and died... We're never going to let that happen again. In 1937, they established the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier Guard. The tomb's guards. They're called sentinels. And ever since then, there has never been a moment where there has not been a guard guarding that place. Now you have to understand, the weather can get pretty nasty. They've been outside in in, in hurricane-first winds. They've been outside in blizzards. They've been outside in freezing cold and searing heat. 24-7, 24-7, 365, since 1937, there's been an honor guard there. Now, if you read about their, their job, it says, listen to this, it's an amazing statement. It takes the average sentinel eight hours to prep their uniform for the next workday. When these people, these people come out, they've got enormous pride in what they do. There is not a button on their uniform that has not shined to the highest degree of shine there is not a smudge on their boots there is not a crease in their pants there is not There's. they are flawless flawless when they go out to the point where it takes them 8 hours to prepare the uniform for the next day their hair is always cut super short and every day they get a haircut you know I else gets a haircut by the way? Every day, the High Priest. V'asuli bigdei kodesh l'chavor ul And they shall make for me clothing of holiness, for honor and for glory. Let's talk for a moment about clothing. You know, if you look at many areas of life over the last many years, We've lost structure, order, decorum. I'm talking about, when I say the last many years, I'm not referring to the last 20 years, which of course we have. I'm referring to the last 500 years. Go back to Renaissance art. The Renaissance artists, right? There's a famous painting, um, I believe it's by Raphael, called, and I think it's called Aristotle's Academy, but it's definitely called... It's definitely, it's it's a very, very famous piece of art showing one of the great Greek philosophers' academies. And it shows, like, all the students, and there's these archways. The amount of work they put in on what they called perspective. Perspective is where you should be able to look at it, and you see, as things get further away from you, they get smaller and smaller. The details. The details that went into their artwork. The hours and hours and hours that they labored. To perfectly portray things with such beauty and accuracy. The music from the Renaissance era. Right? Think about listening. Forget the Renaissance era, even later. Beethoven, Mozart. There's such mathematical perfection to their music. Raphael's the School of Athens. Thank you very much. That's what I'm talking about. Yes, the School of Athens. That's exactly what I'm referring to. See, it's good to... Hi is my right-hand man over here. People are going to think, people watch this video, they think there's only on High and Cherna, because those are the names that I say all the time, but there's many more people here because that Hi always helps me out all the time. Anyway, but, okay. They put so much work into their, into their paintings. The music that they created, literature, Shakespearean sonnets are most frequently written with iambic pentameter. Now do me a favor, hi, Google iambic pentameter, post it over here so I can read it off. I don't remember the exact definition right now, but we'll get back to it in a second. There is a perfection to these things. They work really hard. What's modern art today? A Jackson Pollock? Some dude throwing slapping paint at a wall? What's modern art today? Some guy who makes a mirror covered in semi-transparent red paint and sells it for five million dollars because that's true. Like I mean, like, it just this is the world we're in. What's music today? Beats and yelling and screaming and cursing and just it's it's unbelievable. What is iambic pentameter? It's a type of metric line used in traditional English poetry and verse drama. The term describes the rhythm or meter established by the words. In that, hold on. In that line, rhythm is measured in small groups of syllables called feet. Pentameter indicates a line of five feet. So, in Shakespearean sonnets, you have five syllable sections, and they're all lined up perfectly like that. So, not only do they have to create this incredible wisdom in their poetry, it's got to be it's got to be sound perfect. It's got to have the perfect meter to it. They say I don't know if this is true, but they say that. If you listen to classical music, you add like one or two points to your IQ because it's so perfectly, mathematically perfect. It creates order in the brain, so to speak. And we got Jeffrey Dell. has got the, the, by the way, if you want to see, Jeffrey Dell, get out of the way. Show everybody. That, that is, Jeffrey Dell's background right now is the famous painting, The School of Athens. If you look at the me- multiple layers of arches and arches, and they get smaller and smaller as they go back, this is considered to be one of the perfect examples. You can just stay down, Jeffrey. You're good like that. Uh, this is considered to be one of the perfect examples of 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 perspective. Today, again, our art is like you know modern art doodling, and 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 and, and, and music is just it's bizarre. When I was in, when I was younger, I remember there was there was an album that came out from a, a group. I'm not even say the name. I'm not even say the album's name. But this went like triple platinum. It was like the biggest album of the year. The entire album was like played on three chords. It was like so uncomplicated. The music was so... And so we're just living in a world of... And let's talk about clothing. Now we can trace it back, according to my mother, we can trace it back to John F. Kennedy to a certain degree. Because if you look at paintings... Not paintings. (laughs) Pictures. Photographs. If you look at photographs, people wore hats in public as a sign of respect. Who was the person who broke down that tradition? That young, handsome, good-looking president, John F. Kennedy, with this big shock of red hair, reddish hair. And he came to his inauguration with a bared head. And then it became a slow movement to the point where now no one wears a hat in the streets. Yesterday, I was listening to an interview with a guy named Jack Mahler, now, by the way, ladies and gentlemen, a number of times on this podcast, on this podcast, on this class, on this shear, my Thursday shear, I've said things, statements like, "Mark the date today," and watch the date is today, da da da, and watch. I, I said, by the way, in November, you can go back and look at the tape. In November of nineteen, I didn't know about no pandemic or whatever it was, but I said we are going to see an, a market crash within two years, and boom, by March it happened. Now, I actually also have myself on, t- on, 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 on my Parsh email before the previous crash in 2008. I wrote a whole Shabbos email describing the debt-to-savings ratio in American households, and I said, this house of cards is going to tumble. Today is February 10th, 2022. It's 12.47 p.m. What I'm saying to you now is <laughs> watch Bitcoin because that thing is going to explode. This is not financial advice. But I've been saying this for years, for those who know me, but I'm, I'm just telling you, it's, right now, Bitcoin's at 45 grand, roughly. It's, it's unbelievable what the potential of that thing is. And I really believe you're going to see that this thing is going it's, it's to be incredible. There's a guy named Jack Mahler. Jack Mahler is a huge figure in the Bitcoin world. But I can't get into the whole thing. He's the CEO of a company called Strike, which enables lightning payments. But let me just, let me just say this. He allows you to use the Bitcoin network because besides the Bitcoin being a currency, besides being a store of value, the Bitcoin is, the Bitcoin is so many different things and that's what makes it so valuable. But one of the things also, it's a financial network that goes all over the world. But there's, it's slow, it's complicated. The Lightning Network is a layer two protocol which lies on top of the Bitcoin protocol, creates massive bundles of transactions and drops them on the protocol. But the advantage of it is that it's way cheaper than using the actual Bitcoin itself. It's still based on the Bitcoin blockchain, but it's way cheaper, it's way quicker, and it's, it's like almost, it costs pennies. Jack Mahler, and by the way, think about all the, the, do you know how many hundreds of billions of dollars, what we call our remittances, remittances are people who come here from Honduras, from El Salvador, from the Dominican Republic, Dominican Republic, from all over South America, from Mexico, from Colombia, they come here, they work here. And many of them send their money, or a good chunk of their money, back home to help their families. That's called remittances. There are hundreds and hundreds of billions of dollars of remittances every single year. Most of those remittances are being sent through services like Western Union, who takes a nice chunk of your money. And then you, go to, you have to go to a Western Union location, or you could do it online, they charge you more, and then your, your relative in Honduras has to go to a Western Union station and pick up the actual physical cash, Right? With the Bitcoin Lightning Network, which is, again, not for right now, it is able, you can send money to Honduras in 12 seconds and pay, like, literally pennies. So there are countries in the world that are starting to, it's called orange pilling. When you change somebody over to be a Bitcoin fanatic, it's called orange pilling. There's a famous movie called The Matrix. There was a blue pill and a red pill. Do you want to, like, do you want to see reality for what it is? Do you want to keep going back to your, like, you know, whatever your, your fantasy world that the machines are making you think it is, that's called red pill or blue pill. So orange pill is when you convince somebody that Bitcoin is the future of the world. This guy, Jack Mahler, is literally changing the world economy. He's 27 years old. He looks like he's 12. Okay, And he walks around all day in hoodies and t-shirts and baseball caps. And like, he, I, This is the new world. Mark Zuckerberg. Right, the owner of Facebook, which just lost like 30% of their market share in one week. <laughs> Bye-bye $300 billion. Mark Zuckerberg was famous for walking around in a t-shirt, gray t-shirt and a pair of jeans, which of course he took from his idol, Steve Jobs, who always wore a black turtleneck and a pair of jeans. But there was a breakdown in the idea of dressing up. So you have this guy, Jack Muller, who's the CEO of one of the, I believe, one of the most important country companies in the world of finance right now cuz he's transitioning uh, the world financial rails from the antiquated, you know, banking system which is horrible and expensive and slow and just not a great system to a much quicker, better system. He's a really important guy. He walks around all day in like t-shirts and hoodies. And of course, that he, he happens to have a very foul mouth, too. Right? He may be brilliant. He may be doing amazing things. For the world, he has a very foul mouth. And the truth is that both of those things are exactly endemic of, not endemic, not emblematic of each other. I'm not surprised when I see that somebody who walks around with hoodies and t-shirts all day has a foul mouth. Because when you walk around as the CEO of a company of 400, 500 employees, you've got this, you've got that, but you're walking around with t-shirts and hoodies... You're saying, I don't care. I just do my way. I don't care about the whole tradition. I don't care about the way anyone else looks at me. I'm, gonna do- I'm in your face. Which is exactly what a potty mouth is. A potty mouth is, when, what, is what, does it, what does it mean when today, today, it's, it's disgusting. There used to be a time where on TV, on radio, you couldn't use certain words. Today, it's all kosher. We're living in a world where basic ideas of morals, of dignity, it's breaking down. Now, fascinatingly, fascinatingly, let's say a guy like Jordan Peterson. Jordan Peterson is a professor from Canada. Whether you like him or not, it's not the issue. But he's constantly calling on people to take control of their lives and get their act together. And his big line is like, clean up your room, buddy. Like, just clean up your room. Not buddy. Clean up your room. Take responsibility for yourself. Act more respectful of yourself, and you will respect yourself more. Jordan Peterson always dresses very, very nattily, wears suits and three-piece suits, and I think that's part of the idea. The way, we portray, the way we dress is the way we portray ourselves to the world. When you were a Kohen Gadol, or you were entering in the temple of God, you were saying, I'm going to talk to God. Now, if you don't take that seriously, then by all means, walk in in a t-shirt and a hoodie. If you take that seriously, then by all means, dress up for that experience. And if you're serving God on behalf of the Jewish people, dress up even more. The the, the people who are trying to honor the, the unknown soldier spend eight hours preparing the uniform for one day of service. Polishing the buttons, ironing it, ironing it again. There's a little, tiny little stain. Even though no one can see it, I'm standing 20 yards from the closest person. But no, 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 there's a tiny stain. Eight hours preparing their clothing for one shift. Because they are the honor guard. They're here to give honor to something. And the way you give honor to something is by being structured. By being orderly. By not wearing a t-shirt and a hoodie. By not speaking in a way that's uncouth. By not having meaning our world is a world of breakdown. The music is broken down, the art is broken down, the the literature is broken down. You know, today it's like you know, modern poetry got... people used to have to work to create poetry. They had to really, really, really work hard. To get if you wanted to write an iambic pentameter, so again, not only was there rhyming, but there's like perfect structure in everything that you wrote. And 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 here. We have people, modern poetry, somebody sitting at an open night, mic night, you know, just spewing, spewing, spewing curse words and this and that. And, oh, it's modern, it's daring, it's outrageous, it's crazy. You know, it's the front, it's the front, it's, 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 it's avant-garde. No, it's not avant-garde. People have been swearing and cursing in, in, in pubs and bars for the last 2,000 years. You're not avant-garde. And if your art is just like flat, flap flap flat, flat, just throwing paint at a, at a wall or drawing stick figures or whatever else you're doing for modern art and it's like so cool because oh look at me, I'm so awesome and people are going to buy my art even though I just basically made a, a, a stick figure, you know, eating a lollipop and you're going to buy my art because I'm so famous and I'm so cool. It's another way of saying to the world, I don't care, I don't respect you. I'm going to walk in with a hoodie and a t-shirt to the IMF, to the International Monetary Fund because I don't care. I'm showing you I'm where it's at. I don't care about norms. I don't care about structure. I don't care about discipline. I don't care what comes out of my mouth. I don't care what comes out of, you know, how I look, what I say. You don't like it. I don't care. The Kohen was not like that. The Kohen was the lechavot ulusifares. If you're going to talk to God, dress up. If you're going to serve God on behalf of the other people, Make sure that your clothing is perfect. If you were a coin, you were not allowed to to serve in the tabernacle with a stain on your clothing. Not allowed to serve in the tabernacle. Now remember, there was blood, there was fire, there was smoke, there was all kinds of stuff going around in the temple. You had to keep your clothing pristine. Okay. I have one last idea. Okay, I'm going to connect it with what I just said. the The high priest wore eight vestments. Um, He wore a pair of like a pair of trousers. He wore a special tunic. He wore a belt over that tunic. He wore a special turban. Then he wore a cloak made out of blue wool. He wore a breastplate, a beautiful golden breastplate with amazing jewels that would be able to light up miraculously. He wore an apron, which covered the bottom half of his body, like he would wear, he wore it around his hips, basically, and it would tie from the back. And then he wore a golden uh, plate that said, Holy to God. Now listen carefully, guys. This is an amazing idea. The sages tell us that different vestments acted as a kapara, as an atonement, for different sins. It says, why is the parsha of the uh, of the vestments adjacent to the parsha uh, to to, uh, to the karbanos? Because it's teaching you that just like offerings provide atonement, so too the various clothing offer atonement as well. Now, what does it say? For example, the choshen, the breastplate, would atone for the sin of. Um, For the sin of making mistakes in like civil lawsuits and stuff like that, and the apron would atone for somebody serving idols. Now, remember, the apron would be on the lower half of the body. I have to ask you the following: If a person is serving idols, or he's denying the reality and the the reality of God, is that because he's got in his mind, right? In his mind, he's got a problem. He's got questions. Why should I believe? I don't know. I can't see God. I can't smell God. I can't feel God. I would think that the, the, the thing that should atone for idol worship, right? Or the thing that would atone for you know, today, like atheists, similar to idol worship. Today, we don't really have idol worship. Instead, we have more like atheism, denying of God's reality. In those days, they would say there was a God, but not, not this God, it's that God. So I would think maybe the golden, you know, uh, like, sort of like faceplate that he wore that said, Holy to God. Because, you know, you're thinking all your atheistic thoughts. You're thinking, I want to serve this idol and this idol. Instead of, you're, you're deciding whether the Jewish God is true or that God is true. These are all things that you're thinking about in your head. It should be the golden faceplate that you wore. That should atone for idol worship. But instead, what atones for idol worship? The apron you wore around your legs, the lower part of your body. To which, my friends, I want to point you to an amazing, amazing statement from the sages. The Gemara says in Sanhedrin, Samach Gimel Ahmed Bey's tractate Sanhedrin 63B. What does it say? Let's see it over here. Hold on. Amar of Yehuda, Amar Rav. Rav Yehuda says in the name of Rav, The Jews knew that there's no substance to idolatry. The reason why they engaged in idolatry was to permit themselves overt immorality, sexual immorality. Meaning, really what drives our desire for idolatry? What drives the desire for idolatry is not that, oh, I've been thinking about God, and I don't know, if I can't see God, I can't believe that he exists. I mean, we're looking at a world where you you look at molecules, we can look at cells. I mean, forget forget about back then. Today, we have access of looking at the world and understanding how human cells function, the many organelles in a human cell. We have the ability to go way further down to that, to start looking at nuclear, on the nuclear level, looking at molecules with protons and neutrons tightly collapsed in the middle and electrons whirring around at the speed of light, essentially. And then they're swapping electrons together with each other to create water. You think water is water. Water is not water. Water is billions of miracles every second. So you're you're really sitting there thinking, I don't know if there's a God. No, says the Talmud. What that really means is I want to do whatever I want. I want to be promiscuous. I want to do whatever I want. But when I'm promiscuous, I feel bad about myself. I feel uncomfortable about myself. So you know what I say? Uh, I don't believe in God. I don't believe in God. Uh, How could there be a God if I don't see one? So now I can go do whatever I want. I can be overtly promiscuous and, and look at our society today. We live in such an atheistic society and how ridiculously overtly promiscuous is our society today? So you know what the Torah says? I'm calling your bluff. The aphod is that which atones for the sin of idolatry. It doesn't cover your head. Because your sin of your idolatry didn't come from your head. It covers your lower body. Because it's your lower desires. Your base, lower, promiscuous desires that made you want to be an atheist. That made you want to serve idols. The Torah is calling your blood. It's so beautiful. The Torah says, no, 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 no. The, temple, the, the beautiful plate of gold on the Kohen Godot's head. That's not where promiscuity comes from. Promiscuity comes from the lower... Sorry, Avotah Zarah idol worship, atheism, not believing in God, denying God's reality, saying I want to serve all the other pantheon of God, it's all because you want to do whatever you want to do with your lower extremities. The Torah says, I'm calling your bluff. Don't think you're a philosophical heavyweight. You're just a perv. You just want to do whatever you want. You want to be promiscuous overtly and openly. So, no, sorry, you're not like this deep-thinking atheist. Stephen Hawking, one of the most famous atheists of our time, who wrote a book. He wrote a couple books. I think it was called The God Delusion or whatever. A brilliant scientist, mind you. And he was a very, very public atheist. He also left the wife who schlepped him around. He was in a wheelchair. He couldn't move. And his wife took care of him for years. And he left her for a younger woman. And suddenly he's an atheist. Wow. Kind of works out well for you. Because if there is a God, you'd be a little uncomfortable with what you were doing. It's a lot easier to say, oh, I'm an atheist. I don't believe there's a God. There's no moral right or wrong. The Torah says, you know what is going to atone for your avodazara? The aphod. The part that the Kohen Gunhal wears in the lower half of his body. We're not fooled by your bluff. Anyway, ladies and gentlemen, the point for today is, number one... We want to teach things to others. We want to inspire others. We got to do it first. We got to live it. We got to experience it. We got to believe it. Moshe was the best person to teach mitzvahs that cost money because he was willing to give up money to go do the mitzvah of burying Yosef. Number two, we talked about the importance of showing structure, showing restraint, showing discipline in our lives. Today, I feel like even so many adults today, just the, 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 the proliferation of cursing and of using words that are inappropriate. It's not so cool. It's so pathetic. And the importance of saying, I want to put structure in my life. If I want to be able to serve God, I need structure and order in my life. And when I go to synagogue, I should dress up. Synagogues here in town, they have, come as you are, Shabbat services. Everyone shows up in their t-shirts and their shorts. It's, It's so missing the point. It's so walking over Judaism and saying, yeah, Judaism is not important. You can come, come get Judaism any way you, you like it. But that's, that's not what... Jude- Judaism is a relationship with God. It's supposed to be aspirational. Dress up for Shabbos. Please, by all means. Put on a suit. Put on a tie. Put on a sport coat. Put on a button-down shirt. Dress up. Even if you're someone davening at home, you're supposed to wear shoes. You're supposed to be covered properly. It's, there are rules to this. Structure is a good thing for the world. And the more we just move into this chaotic, anything-goes world, it's, we're, we're missing out. And we see the world getting chaotic around us. We're, un, we're trying to figure out why is this happening? How is this happening? And lastly, the importance of recognizing that the desire to say, I don't believe, and the desire to be, whether it's atheist or serving other gods or whatever it is, it's not coming from up here. It's coming from your lower parts of your body. And the Torah calls that out, and we should recognize that too. And with that, my dear friends, let's call it a wrap. So thank you so much for coming. Thank you so much for listening. And thank you, most importantly, for being awesome. Because you are. You've just experienced another Torah class brought to you by TorahAnytime.com.